I don't know the details of the experiment, so maybe they had some clever kind of airlock system for introducing the shavings. I don't know. Um, uh, but how, I guess that is possible. How sophisticated do you think their equipment is going to be? For They're on space! <laughs> you are right. <laughs> I'm okay! <laughs> Jodcast. There's more beneath the surface with George Bendo, Fiona Healy, Meek Henson, Indy LeClerc, Benjamin Shaw, and Joe Zuntz. The Jodcast, September 2015 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm George and with me today are Fiona and Ben. Hello. Hello. Hi, George. In the show this time, we interview Dr. Reiner Beck about galactic magnetic fields, and Joe Zunz answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Ben interviews Hannah Stacy in this month's Jodbite. Our Jodbite this week is with someone whose voice will be familiar to many listeners, Hannah Stacy. Hannah came to the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics in September 2014, joining the Extragalactic Astronomy and Cosmology Group as a master's student. She has recently submitted a thesis entitled Investigating Radio Quiet Quasars with Gravitational Lenses. Hi, Hannah. Hi. What's it like to be, as it were, on that side of the microphone? Oh, well, yeah, it's a bit surprising. I wasn't really <laughs> expecting it. <laughs> well, I've never been interviewed anyone before either, so it's a bit surprising for both of us. Um so you investigate gravitational lenses. Yeah. Uh, you use those as a tracer for quasar activity. Yes. Uh, most people are familiar to some extent with what gravity is. Most people are familiar to some extent with what a lens is. What's a gravitational lens? So a, a gravitational lens is um, an effect that happens when you have um, a background source that is lined up along the line of sight of a massive foreground object and the light from the background object is lensed or bent around the foreground object. And so the background object can appear magnified, distorted, and in the strong lensing regime, which is the part of um, lensing that I work in, um, you see multiple images of the source. Okay, so you effectively have an object between you and another object, and the fact that that intermediary object is able to distort the space-time around it you end up seeing parts of the background thing that you wouldn't ordinarily see. So the background source is magnified, so it appears with a larger surface area and a brighter flux from our point of view than it would otherwise appear to be. Right, because that light you're receiving, if it weren't for this intermediary object, would go off in another direction and miss the Earth entirely? Right, it's it's the same principles as a an ordinary optical lens. You know, like a, a magnifying glass. Yeah. It's sort of like having a, um, a gravity being used as a magnifying glass to be able to look at these very faint and um, compact sources in more detail. Okay, okay. So light that would be either parallel or diverging away from you, this massive object actually converges that light upon the Earth and we see. Yeah, exactly. This Just like a, a regular lens. I see. Okay. Um, so are there different types of lensing? Yeah, so there are three different regimes of lensing. There is um, strong lensing, which is what I work with, and that's when you have the um, the source and the foreground object aligned closely along the line of sight, so you see this um, multiple imaging effect. Weak lensing is also um, 
is an effect used in cosmology, which is the distortions that happen due to the large-scale structure of the universe, so clusters of galaxies and galaxies as a whole, and how they are um, distorting all the galaxies in the universe. I see. And then um, microlensing at the other end of the scale is um, an effect that happens within strong lensing, whereby you have a very compact source and that small changes in the gravitational field of the foreground object due to the stars moving in the foreground galaxy sort of differentially magnifies the source object so it appears to change in flux in brightness over time. Right, I think I've heard of gravitational microlensing being used to discover planets where you have a, a, a star passing in front of a background object, the light from that background object is magnified and then the planet passes shortly afterwards and you see a little dip in the flux as well. Right, yeah, because the planet also contributes a little bit of um, uh, gravity to the system, yeah. So you work on in the strong lensing regime. Yeah. What sort of images do you see? So it, it depends on the particular configuration of the lens system. So if you were to have um, the source and background object perfectly lined and the um, gravitational field of the foreground object was perfectly uniform, then what you would see is is like um, an Einstein ring, so a ring around the foreground object. Um, when you have a very compact source, you might see what's called an Einstein cross. It's sort of a, a cross-shape configuration. In reality, what what you see more likely is different configurations depending on whereabouts the background object is with respect to the foreground object. Okay. So you can predict particular um, flux ratios of the different images mm -hmm. depending on um, whereabouts it appears with relation to the foreground object. Right. That makes sense, right? Because you've got light coming from the background object in, in all directions. And so if you've got a perfect alignment, you're going to see light coming over the top of it, around the sides of it, around the bottom of it, and you're going to see this perfect ring. It's just like the um, effects and light reflecting through your wine glass <laughs> and um, the way that the light moves as you move your wine glass with respect to the source. I mean, that's what, how I'm imagining it anyway. <laughs> Fair enough, that's really cool. Um, so how do you generally observe these? What, what electromagnetic bands are they generally visible in? Uh, well, all bands, it just depends on the, um, the light emitting from the source. So it's not dependent on the um, the wavelength of the light. I work in radio, uh, radio interferometry, because the sources that we're looking at are very um, compact and the lenses are very compact, so you need a very high resolution to detect them. So what sort of objects tend to form the foreground objects? Typically you have massive galaxies. Any object can be a lens, but um, because of how numerous massive elliptical galaxies are, and because of the gravitational field of them, they're more likely to be the the lens in strong lens systems. How were gravitational lenses discovered? Well, the first gravitational lens was discovered from Jodrell Bank, actually, wow. with the Lovell telescope. Um, it was a, a double quasar lens. With the system, you have a, a quasar with a, a massive jet, and it's just the core of the quasar that has been lensed. So you see two images of the core of the quasar and just one massive jet from the top image. 
So was it obvious at the time that what we were seeing in these two images of the same quasar, that they're actually the same object? Or was it thought that perhaps this is two objects that are just very similar in the same patch of sky? Yeah, yeah. So the way that you decipher that is by looking at the, the spectra of these objects and by comparing the two. And because they were the same, it was quite clear that this was the first lens that they discovered. I mean, is it, is it, would it have been at all possible for these two images to have been two I think there are examples images, of... of um, multiple quasar systems or just two sources that happen to be close together hmm. but it was because of the matching spectra of these objects that they were able to discern that it was a lens so in your research you're using these gravitational lenses to trace the activity in quasars can you give us a brief reminder of what a quasar is so well what we think a quasar is is a, um, something called an active galactic nucleus which is um uh, when you have a supermassive black hole at the centre of a galaxy that's um, accreting matter and producing this huge amount of energy, which makes them the brightest objects in the universe. Okay. And what do they what do they look like in our telescopes? How do we see them? Are they are they quite extended? Can we see them the the internal structure of these things, or are they just little points of light? Yeah, they're they're very compact sources. So some of them appear with jets. And some of them don't. Right. Um, the jets themselves, there's still a bit of a mystery as how they're produced, but essentially it's because the accretion onto the, um, onto the black hole is quite inefficient. So a lot of it is ejected and irradiated. And that's what makes them so bright. Right. I see. So in your thesis, you've been looking at radio quiet quasars. You've been using radio telescopes to look at radio quiet quasars. So presumably, what does radio quiet mean? It doesn't mean they're radio silent, obviously. No, no, it's a bit of a misnomer, really. It doesn't mean they're radio silent. It's a way to distinguish between these two different, apparently, modes of quasar. All quasars are very bright in the optical X-ray, other um, wavelengths. But in the radio wavelengths, there's this disparity so some quasars are extremely bright in the radio, and whereas others are faint and haven't been detected, we haven't been able to detect the radio components of them, and it's not clear what causes this disparity. And um, the big question is, what is the emission mechanisms of these objects? So we know that in the radio loud quasars, they exhibit these jets, and the emission from these objects is caused by effects of the jets. Whereas the radio quiet regime, the question is, are they powered by the same emission mechanisms or is it something different? Why are they quiet and not loud? And why do some have jets and some not? Yes. I see. So what is it that you've been looking at and what have you been using to do so? So because the radio components of these sources are so um, faint, they're not able to detect them. We're using this effect of gravitational lensing to kind of, it's kind of as a cheat, really, to sort of use the, use it as a magnifying glass to be able to look at these sources that would ordinarily be too faint and too compact to detect. I see. So you've focused on four quasars and you've been using, what have you been using to look at those? The observations that I, um, was analysing were using eMerlin, which is the um, radio interferometer based at Jodrell Bank, using seven telescopes around the UK. Why seven? Why, why would it not be possible to do this with just a single dish? So um, to be able to get the resolution that you need to observe these objects, you would have to have a dish, dish so big that it would be unfeasible to build. 
So the, the distance between these telescopes in E. Merlin, the largest distance is about 220 kilometers. So if you imagine trying to build a dish that big, it would be ridiculous. And to get the amount of precision that you need as well. Um, I suspect a dish that size probably wouldn't hold itself up. Right, well. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you need to get it so precise as well to get the, um, the uh, quality of the data. Interferometry um, employs a technique called aperture synthesis. You use these telescopes as elements in a larger virtual aperture. And as the Earth moves, these elements start to fill this virtual aperture. So it's as if you have one really big telescope. The difference is the data that we collect from um, an interferometer is slightly different from the data in um, an ordinary radio telescope. It uses a technique whereby light that is coherent will add constructively when they are in phase and destructively when they're out of phase. So if you know the uh, experiment of light passing through a slit, you know that, that you see a set of um, visibility fringes, points at which light is added constructively and parts where the, um, the light has added destructively. So you see light patches and dark patches. In astronomy, we use this effect and the relationship between these um, fringes of light and the characteristics of the source so there's a relationship between those two, and we use that to understand the source in the sky. So you have four sources that you've been focusing on. What is it you observed? Uh, I observed um, four of these gravitational lenses, and what was in special about these gravitational lenses is that there are, um, the source is in a position relative to the foreground galaxy, so that, that they are really highly magnified. So this made us able to... Um, observe sources that were really faint. In fact, some of the faintest sources ever detected. And these are radio quiet quasars, so so we wouldn't have been able to observe these um these quasars if it wasn't for the lensing. So my research is part of a collaboration. So I was using the email and observations, whereas other members of the research group has um some observations with the VLA, which is a different telescope, uh, a different interferometer. And um, we were observing at different frequencies and then combining the data to better understand the sources. So in my case, I only detected one of the sources, but I was able to use the VLA observations to be able to infer characteristics of the sources based on that. We, um, we found some uh, interesting results. So we found out that radio quiet quasars are likely to be a smaller version of the radio loud quasars. So they probably have a very small jet that's causing their um, radio emission, but it's just much smaller than the jets that you see in radio loud quasars. And that's why they appear fainter. And the reason that we um, don't observe them is because they are so compact and their jet is milliarc second scale. So it's too small for us to be able to resolve with our current technology. I see. So even though there is a, a selection effect in that some of these jets are too small to actually resolve and some of them are big enough to resolve, there is still an intrinsic difference between these radio quiet and these radio loud quasars. Right, yeah. The question is, why is it not a, a smooth distribution of luminosities across the population? 
So what we think is um, the very loud end of the population, um, they tend to be found within massive elliptical galaxies. So um, it could be possible that these are a result of mergers because we know that massive elliptical galaxies are produced by mergers between other galaxies. It's possible that they are loud because the active galactic nucleus has been um, spun up by this influence of the mergers. So it um, makes the jets more powerful. Right. And that's why they appear so loud. So two galaxies, possibly spiral galaxies, will come together, form an elliptical galaxy, and the interaction of their cores, their, their AGNs, their, or their, their central black holes, causes these jets to be launched from this elliptical galaxy. Yeah, so and that's what it, you're seeing in the radio loud population. Right, yeah, it makes them more powerful. Right. Because the, the central black hole gets spun up mm-hmm. by the interaction. Um, so, but it's hypothetical. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so where would a radio quiet quasar come from in the context of that model? Well, it's, it seems more likely that there is a, a smooth distribution of um, radio luminosities across the population because we know that there is a relationship between the um, the radio luminosity and the optical luminosity of a quasar. Right. So um, we think that maybe the d- the disparity at the um, radio loud quasar end is due to these mergers, and ignoring that part, the rest of the population is more of a smooth distribution. I see. So it's it's those mergers that separate the radio loud ones from the rest of the smoothly varying population. So where's your research going to take you in the future? How long are you going to be around with us now you've submitted? <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to stick around for a little bit longer. I'm, I'm doing some more research with some very old Merlin data um, at a frequency that we no longer observe at because of mobile phones and things. Ah. <laughs> but um, we're hoping that the data is going to be useful because we can um, use it to hopefully solve a problem with LOFAR calibration. And LOFAR is? Uh, LOFAR is a, a low-frequency array in um, based in the Netherlands, but there are telescopes all over Europe, and it observes at a, um, a low frequency, a low radio frequency. The issue is, with LOFAR calibration, nothing appears unresolved on the very long baselines of LOFAR, and we need to be able to have a model for the um, calibrator sources to calibrate against. And because LOFAR is, is new and we don't have these calibrator sources, I'm hoping this old Merlin data is going to be useful to provide a model to calibrate with on the LOFAR baselines because it will be about the same resolution. But um, it remains to be seen if that's going to work yet. <laughs> so this old Merlin data, is, is that pre-mobile phone era? Uh, it's a 94, 95. Wow. Um, it's, it actually exists in a, an old file format that no longer exists, so it's a bit of a challenge to... Right try and convert it into something usable. So you're going to be around here working on that for another few months, and then what's your plan um, after that? Hopefully a PhD at some point. Okay. Um, <laughs> Excellent. In a similar field, or are you hoping to move on? Um, I, I like radio interferometry, so um, I think, um, yeah, I think I would like to stay in this, a similar field, but uh, don't quote me on it, you know. Well, hopefully we'll be seeing you on the Jodcast for a few more uh months on back on this side of the microphone and um well all the best for the future and thanks for joining us thank you thanks for that ben and now wendy interviews dr reiner beck about galactic magnetic fields today i'm with dr reiner beck from the max Planck institute in bonn hi reiner 
Hi. Thanks. Thanks for being with us today. Um, so you recently gave a talk uh, in Manchester uh, about your area of specialization, uh, which is basically cosmic magnetic fields, so magnetic fields in the universe uh, and particularly in galaxies. Could you maybe start off by giving us an overview of what kinds of magnetic fields we find in space and, and why it's globally, why it's interesting to study them? Oh, that, that's already a difficult question. <laughs> so, uh, as uh, probably everybody knows, is magnetism is one of the fundamental forces in the universe. So, um, it should be there everywhere, but uh, the cosmic magnetic fields are very hard to observe. So, we believe that they are probably also existing everywhere in all cosmic objects, and even there where we don't see anything could be still there. Um, the problem, the point is that uh, magnetic fields don't radiate by themselves, so they are just uh, exerting forces. Uh, they are over-spanning uh, regions within uh, the space, but uh, to see them, particles have to enter the magnetic fields, and these are uh, electrically charged particles, and only then we can observe them. That is why observations are important to show how how what role magnetic fields play in, in processes in astrophysics. So we know that uh, they are uh, important on the sun, so solar activity is connected to magnetic fields. We know that they're important also around planets. We know that uh, the Earth magnetic field is important just to keep off charged particles coming from the solar wind. So that is very important just to allow life to develop on Earth. It has been important. And if the magnetic field of the Earth disappears, it is very harmful to life on Earth. And mm -hmm. We believe that maybe some of the big cat catastrophes could be related to the disappearance of magnetic field over some limited time. Mm -hmm. um, but if we go further out uh, to stars, then we know a bit that many stars have strong magnetic fields, but we cannot look into stars. We just can look at the surfaces. We don't know how strong magnetic fields are within the stars. We do not know um, what uh, role magnetic fields play if a star is formed. We do not know what happens to the fields if uh, the star explodes. We do know very little about what happens to magnetic fields between the stars and the so-called interstellar space. If we go even out of the Milky Way and out of galaxies, uh, our knowledge is practically zero. And some people believe that magnetic fields already existed in the very early universe. There are many processes so that can produce magnetic fields. Do they still survive until today? Or did they disappear? Are they thrown out of uh, stars, of galaxies? These are all questions we just started to, uh, to work on. We are at the very beginning of our knowledge of, of magnetism in space, but we do know some things. So, for one, we have discovered that galaxies, spiral galaxies in particular, possess their own magnetic field and we can detect that. So could you maybe explain how, how you'd go about detecting a, a magnetic field in, a, in such a galaxy and, and what, what kind of properties the, that those fields have? Basically, there are several methods to, to look for um, magnetic fields in, in spiral galaxies. So one is using optical polarization that has been done in the past, but it turned out to be quite difficult because um, polarization can be produced by magnetic fields. Um, in detail, these are, are dust grains which are aligned in magnetic fields and they cause um, deflections and extinction of, of light in along one uh, one orientation that, so that the, the other orientation perpendicular to that is left over that cause polarization. But unfortunately, optical polarization can only be caused by, by just by scattering. 
without any magnetic fields being involved. And mm-hmm. that uh, makes things very complicated, and that's why only very few people are working on optical polarization. Um, then there's the so-called Zeeman effect, which is the uh, splitting of spectral lines in a strong magnetic fields, but you need really strong magnetic fields for that, and you also need strong spectral lines, and that can be applied only for very dense molecular clouds and hydrogen clouds that cannot be applied to very distant objects. So that is restricted to a few objects, and that's why um, most people now work on so-called synchrotron emission. Synchrotron emission comes from uh, um, charged particles entering magnetic fields, and they produce highly polarized um, radio emission. Um, so the big advantage is we can use uh, the existing big radio telescopes. Synchrotron emission is very strong. It is uh, hardly um, mixed with some other emission components, so you can be rather sure that this is uh, magnetically driven radiation. And the degree of polarization is very high. Optical polarization is only a few, only a few percent at maximum, whereas uh, synchrotron polarization can theoretically be up to 75%. In practice, we observe degrees of polarization of up to 50%, which is really unexpectedly high. So that is the big discovery from uh, from last century, end of last century, that galaxies have uh, strongly polarized uh, synchrotron signals, and that needed uh, special uh, backends of the receivers or so special equipment. In the in the beginning, people did not look for that because they did not expect that. But mm-hmm. then they looked in detail and found, oh, surprised, the emission is really highly polarized. And this is really unexpected because people thought that magnetic fields are quite turbulent because star formation is, produ- uh, is producing turbulence. But uh, fortunately, um, there is a process that's called the dynamo, which can produce order out of the turbulence, order out of chaos. And this is well-known. Dynamos are well-known in all technical applications. We can also make uh, experiments with dynamos in the lab, so we know that dynamos can produce uh, ordered magnetic field also out of turbulent motions, and that is also what happens in galaxies. So there are huge large-scale dynamos. Uh, they use the energy of the general rotation of galaxies. They use existing magnetic fields, and they make use of, of turbulent uh, gas motions, and they can produce such large-scale fields that we observe. It takes time. It takes maybe several hundred million years, even billion years, but it seems to work. Okay, so so to recap a little bit, effectively, we, we observed highly polarized uh, radio waves, effectively, from galaxies. So just a reminder for listeners, when we talk about polarized light, at any wavelength, it's light that propagates uh, with a certain orienta- a preferred orientation, basically. And so you can you can use um, specific equipment on telescopes, radio telescopes, to detect that that kind of light. And this polarized light is coming from electrons, which are moving around in a magnetic field, which itself is generated in a galaxy through this sort of di- so a regular field, which is to say a field that has all of its field lines uh, lined up with each other, and that's generated via this so-called dynamo mechanism, which basically winds up the field lines to so that they all kind of lined up with line up with each other. Am I correct in sort of summing no, it up that way? That's yeah. a perfect summary. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I could have could not have bun, done better. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. So, a magnetic fields found in in all of the spiral galaxies that we've seen so far. Uh, what 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 kind of distribution do we do we know of? So, 
they have been found in all spiral galaxies and not only in spiral galaxies. They are irregular galaxies, they are dwarf galaxies, and as long as there is star formation, we also find magnetic fields. So this is a general law. And the reason for that is that the dynamo needs energy, the dynamo needs turbulence, and uh, both energy and turbulence is, is generated by star formation. That may sound quite abstract, but that just means that the energy is somehow related to uh, what uh, what happens to stars. So it could be uh, stellar winds, it could be supernova remnants, it could be all sorts of outflows from stars. So stars are very energetic objects uh, in galaxies. And uh, at the end of their lives or already during their lives, they can release some of their energy to the interstellar space and and that could uh, causes turbulence. And that is one of the main ingredients of dynamo action. So uh, if there's no more star formation, then magnetic fields, uh, they, which are there, they uh, still can survive for some time until they diffuse out. But there cannot be a new generation of magnetic fields produced anymore. So this is uh, the general idea. So they may diffuse out into interstellar space, but they will become uh, weaker and weaker. Mm-hmm. They will not disappear completely. So this is one of the of the of the main differences between magnetic fields and electric fields. You can destroy electric fields by moving charges around, mm. but magnetic fields cannot be destroyed by charges because there are no magnetic charges. So this yeah. is very amazing. So the so-called magnetic monopoles they apparently do not exist. Mm-hmm. We have no idea why, but this mm. is. Uh, a big mystery. So magnetic fields are, are very hard to destroy. They are so-called recombination of, of, uh, of magnetic fields, reconnection of magnetic fields like uh, shortcuts, but they are quite rare. And um, so magnetic fields can, can live for billions of years. So, so this is what we suspect is the case in something like an elliptical galaxy where the star form- formation rate has gone massively down. And so the fields, magnetic fields may still be there, but they're just not illuminated anymore by, right. by, by charged yeah. particles. So we don't be detect any radiation from from such regions, mm-hmm. um, but there are prospects to to detect them indirectly. So the, the idea is that if you have a, a source of polarized emission behind these objects, it could be anywhere behind, could be very distant, mm-hmm. so-called quasars. If they are polarized, and many of them are polarized, then if this polarized radio emission uh, is passing through uh, a foreground uh, magnetic field, for instance, in an elliptical galaxy, then this uh, polarized emission is is rotated, and uh, normally this rotation cannot occur in the in the quasars themselves, um, but uh, they are supposed to occur in a in a foreground object. Mm-hmm. So that is an indirect uh, way uh, to measure magnetic fields in the foreground. The, the problem only is that the present radio telescopes are uh, not sensitive enough to do that. I see. One more question before we move on to sort of the future possibilities of, of something you've just hinted at. Um, but when you have something like a, a large-scale magnetic field uh, or indeed just a, a turbulent magnetic field, so obviously that is affected by the turbulence of the gas in the galaxy. How does the field itself then act back upon the galaxy as it were like is there an is there a reverse effect where the field has an effect on mm-hmm. gas motions or things like that in the galaxy no certainly it will have because if we measure the the energies of magnetic fields and compare that with the energies of the gas motion and energies of other constituents like cosmic rays the <laughs> 
find that uh, they are all equivalent. That means they, mm-hmm. there's an uh, there's an frequent interplay between these different components, and that means there's back and forth reactions. So the first the gas uh, um, produces amplifies magnetic fields, and then certainly if the magnetic field uh, reaches a certain uh, level of strength, then it will back react on the gas flow. So the gas flows will also be affected, as long as the gas flows are. Uh, ionized. If there's neutral mm-hmm. gas, then it will not be affected. But uh, most of the gas in the um, in the galaxies and in interstellar space is ionized, so there will be a back reaction. But okay. that is uh, widely uh, un uh, not not investigated. So mm-hmm. this is something which needs to be done. Yeah, it, it, it's a bit of a it's not quite a running joke, but it's always that that question at any sort of dynamic seminar. And have you considered the impact of magnetic fields? Yeah, and everyone right. sort of laughs a little bit, and then yeah. looks a bit sheepish, don't yeah. they? Oh, that's not not true anymore. I think <laughs> now the the present day computers are fast enough, so mm-hmm. it's not an excuse anymore not to use implement magnetic fields. That's if people don't do that, then they just uh, they just do a mistake. I think they yeah. they are just. Uh, Okay, or they are in the early process of the of the model. So everybody now yeah. agrees that without magnetic fields, you cannot get any, cannot have any realistic model of of anything in mm-hmm. in, in the universe. That's so fair. That's what most people now realize, and that's why more and more uh, models are including magnetic fields. But yeah. uh, that's the previous question. So how the back reaction runs? This is not yet done because mm-hmm. it's not only sufficient to include magnetic fields. You have to have a very high numerical resolution. So you need big computers to run that and you need mm-hmm. uh, to fo- follow them over a long time. So this is enormous amount of computing time. Sure. So that is on, on the way, but it's, we still have to wait for a few more years until we understand better how at least in the computer, mm-hmm. things run. And then the next point would be uh, to test that with observations. So that is yeah. even, would, would take even longer, I think. One of the very exciting things in terms of magnetism observations is the next generation of telescopes that are coming online and that will start to have the sensitivity needed to really probe magnetic fields um, mm-hmm. in great detail. So you mentioned with looking at background sources of elliptical galaxies, polarized background sources, to be able to maybe derive the, uh, mm-hmm. the magnetic field. And that's going to be possible with things like uh, the SKA, which we've talked a lot about on the Jodcast. But so one of the main goals of the SKA is, is magnetism. So how, how does how does having something like the SKA improve our capability to detect magnetic fields? So first is we, we will get resolution. Uh, so in principle, we can also have high resolution with present-day radio telescopes. But resolution mm-hmm. for extended objects has a big disadvantage. You lose, you just lose radio photons. Mm. If you have high resolution, then the number of photons goes down uh, dramatically, and that means with uh, present-day telescopes, the resolution is limited. So you need both resolution and sensitivity. Um, that means you need just mere collecting area. So the collecting area of the telescope has to be huge, and this mm. is why the square kilometer ray, that's what the name says, has an enormous yeah. collecting area. Whether it will be a really square kilometer, we still don't know yet, but it will be approximately of the order of the square kilometer. And that means we have enormous uh, amount of radio photons, and that mm. allows us to to reduce the beam size to make the resolution better and better so we can really look at details in the interstellar space. We can really look how... How magnetism acts, so how magnetism is changing um, the the gas flows, how m- magnetic fields are expelled from supernova remnants. So mm-hmm. we can really watch uh, the action of magnetic fields in in the interstellar space, yeah. in our Milky Way, and even in, in external galaxies. So this is one of the big dreams that so we can really look at them. 
So, like we look at the at the magnetic fields on the sun, so they are enormously yeah. uh, they're excellent satellites who give us X-ray pictures and UV pictures of the of the solar activity, which is all magnetic. So you can really watch magnetic fields in action. You mm-hmm. can see in prominences eruptions. You can see all these fascinating things. Uh, okay, the time scales in galaxies will be much longer, so we cannot watch them ev- developing. But we will see magnetic fields really how they are. They are Loops, whether they are arcs, whether they are helically uh, twisted, all yep. that is probably uh, visible with the SKA and nearby galaxies. But then the main question is, if we go back in time, when did magnetic fields appear in the universe? Mm-hmm. And that is something the SKA, only the SKA will be able to do. If we're looking back in, in, in time means we are, we are looking back uh, also in the evolution of magnetic fields. And then the question is, when did they come into scene. So when are the first turbulent fields come, when are the first uh, regular fields come, and they are clear predictions from dynamo theory, and we have to test them. And uh, history of science tells us that expectations are never fulfilled, so we <laughs> will certainly find a, a major difference, or maybe we will realize that our models are completely wrong, so let's see. And then, then the interesting part of science starts. We have to revise yeah. our models and then rethink everything completely from scratch. But that's, as you say, that's, that's the interesting bit. That's the, the fun bit. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Thanks a lot for, for telling us about all these magnetic fields. And it, it does seem that there is a, a very bright future for them in the, in the coming years. Um, so thanks again. That's true. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for that, Andy. And now we're at the part of the show where we talk about the things that don't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So, my odd and end, if you remember the uh, last episode, the September episode, I talked about Cassini um, preparing to close its mission to Saturn, and it made its last visit to Dione. Um, At the risk of being repetitious, we're back at Saturn this week for my odd and end, and Enceladus is in the news this week, in the last few days actually, at the time of recording. Um, Enceladus is arguably the most interesting moon of the Saturn system, possibly in the whole solar system as far as I'm concerned, possibly slightly biased. Um, I think you're very biased. Titan's cooler. You're wrong. (laughs) 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 So Enceladus has an an icy crust. It has a probably rocky core. It's cratered. It's taken its fair share of abuse from from bodies from the rest of the solar system, system, comets, etc. But it's fractured, and some of those craters have been cleaned up by geological activity. There are some linear features on there. So it's not completely geologically dead. Now, Cassini has visited Enceladus quite a lot in the past, and one of the things it's discovered that is that Enceladus vents water from fractures at the South Pole. That water is in the form of liquid uh, and vapour. Um, and so this implies two things. One, there is a supply of liquids underneath the surface of Enceladus. And two, there is an internal heat source um, by which this water is pushed out into interplanetary space around Saturn. Now, where that heat comes from is, well, there are two sources possible for it. Either it's residual and it's remaining from the formation of Enceladus. Now, that's probably not very likely. Enceladus is quite small. It will have lost a lot of its heat very early on in its history. What's more likely is that there are tidal interactions occurring with Saturn that are creating an internal heat source in Enceladus that are heating this water and pushing it out of the surface. Uh, much like uh, Io's interaction with Jupiter, where Io's uh, volcanic eruptions are kind of uh, in part uh, or maybe uh, almost entirely produced by uh, gravitational tidal forces with Jupiter. But in the case of Io, it's uh, classical uh, magma 
mm-hmm. that's being uh, vented in the surface, whereas in this case, it's actually water. It's water, yeah. I think it's what they call cryovolcanism. Uh, but what's so far not known is whether what the extent is of this pocket of water underneath the South Pole of Enceladus. It's not clear whether it's localised to the South Pole, whether it envelops the entire inner crust, if you like, of Enceladus. Um, it's also not clear how thick it is, whether that thickness varies across the entire moon. So there's a lot to learn. One way of peering into a solid body's interior is to look at how it rotates. Now, because Enceladus's orbit isn't a perfect circle, and the moon itself isn't a perfect sphere, it's subject to wobbling motions as it rotates, and we see a similar effect in the moon. The moon is tidally locked to the Earth, so we should only see 50% of the surface across an entire orbit, if we were able to look at it across an entire orbit. But if you were to take a picture of the moon every day, if you were able to do that, and speed that image up, as an animated GIF, if you like, you'd see the moon actually wobble back and forth. So you're seeing more than 50% of the moon. We actually see 59% of the moon's surface. And this is a process called libration, and it happens because the Earth and the moon are not perfect spheres. Uh, As they rotate, as they co-rotate with each other, there are different levels of torque applied to each body, and that causes them both to rotate. And I'll put a link to an animation of this in the show notes so you can see it. Yeah, I've seen that before. It looks really cool. It is very cool. So... The Cassini team have been measuring this effect in Enceladus. They've taken seven years of data, and they've done this by, you know, we don't, they don't have a nice secure vantage point like we do on the Earth to look at the Moon, so they've done this by using particular features on the surface as control points. They've mainly used craters and other types of depressions, and they've mapped how the motion of the surface across hundreds of images changes on the surface of Enceladus. And what they've found is that the Moon, uh, Enceladus's libration, they've given a number, and it's 0.120 degrees. Now, that doesn't mean much, but what we can get from that is if the crust were rigidly coupled to the core, this value would be much smaller. In fact, this value is consistent with the presence of a global ocean underneath the surface of Enceladus. So there is a large sea, not localised to the South Pole, but enveloping the entire inner crust. That's incredibly cool, because like we've already talked about, moons of Jupiter, Europa is another moon in the solar system which in which this libration effect has been measured, and that is thought possibly known, I don't know to what significance, to have a large body of water beneath the surface. I was going to bring up that Europa and and Enceladus uh, both seem very similar in Mm. uh, description at this point. I mean, I just think it's really cool. Um, Like, you hear hear about the moons of different planets and you hear people saying, oh yes, it's got water under the crust or it's mostly Mm. made of ice. Uh, And I'm, I'm not a planetary astronomer at all. I don't really know anything about them. So when I hear that, you know, I often think to myself for a second, huh, you know, I wonder how they know that. And then it sort of leaves my head again. So that's really cool that, you know, that's to, to actually know how they do that, mm. what what they can look out for that tells them these bits of information and the kind of telltale signs on the surface that we can see that they then interpret to mean different things. That's really interesting. Indeed it is. And particularly interesting, as I think I mentioned last week, is that uh, Enceladus, we, we know, has a heat source. We we can now infer, or perhaps even know, that it has this large subsurface ocean. These plumes on Enceladus have been shown to contain organic materials. All these things come together to create a world that is potentially suitable for living organisms. And I think that is as good a reason as any to go back to uh, the Saturn system, particularly Enceladus in the future, to hopefully follow that up. I mean, absolutely, because, I mean, if we can find out this much from just looking at the surface of Enceladus, imagine what you could find out if you sent a probe or a, or, or something if down there. If you had to there. land on it and drill. You, exactly, or, it would be amazing, wouldn't it? Although there's also the anxiety, too, that if uh, you send an Earth spacecraft to another planetary system, that you're going to contaminate the other planetary system with bacteria or uh, That's other... a really good point, George. That's true. 
true, yeah. Oh, this has been something that NASA has talked about frequently for years, uh-huh. uh, especially with uh, some of the places which look very suitable for life, and even with um, some research on Earth. So there's been a discussion about research on subglacial lakes in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are uh, places which have been sealed off for uh, millennia from the outside world, and scientists uh, interested in uh, the geological or biological aspects of these lakes uh, have to drill into the lakes to actually study what's inside the lakes, but at the same time, they have to worry about introducing new organisms into those lakes once they drill into it. Exactly the same thing's going to be true with uh, some of these moons with subsurface oceans as well, where if you have an Earth uh, probe drilling into the surface, into the ocean, they may introduce Earth organisms into the ocean. How tragic that would be if we discovered the first alien life only to immediately kill it all off. (laughs) That would be terrible. (laughs) Well, the other possibility, too, is that... uh, which is kind of a bad-for-science type of possibility, is that there is no life there. (laughs) But then we introduce life. (laughs) And then we find life there because we've introduced it, rather than the life actually having arisen there by itself. And we're like, oh, look, it's aliens. But it's not aliens. It's actually just humans. Well, sure. But, I mean, Cassini Cassini have taken some some precautions to try and avoid that. When they close down the Cassini mission, they're going to plunge Cassini into into Saturn, they're going to try and avoid it hitting any of the moons. But another thing as well, if we uh, do discover life, any any new life we discover on Earth, we can trace to a single tree. All that life comes from a single common ancestor. Um, and if we were to say find life on Mars, the chances are that would be the same life as on, on Earth because over over geological and astronomical history, both objects have been hit by bodies from time to time, comets, asteroids, and so rocks have been swapped between the two. Mm-hmm. So there's traffic in both directions. Mm-hmm. So the chances are if we find life on Mars, it'll be the same life as we find on Earth. However, in Enceladus, it would be much more difficult, much more improbable for a piece of rock carrying a microbe to end up at the Enceladus system. So if we do find life on Enceladus, we can check that it's not from the same tree of life, hopefully, as on Earth. Um, and in fact, it's probably more likely that if we do find life there, then that life, the genesis of that life, was independent of the genesis of from life a, on Earth. From a different so, source. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a hell of a reason to go back there, and I really hope we do in the future. Um, Cassini is going to fly over Enceladus on October the 28th. Um, it's going to fly over at an altitude of about 30 miles, which is about four times the altitude of an airliner. Um, so there'll be some pretty good pictures coming from Cassini on or shortly after that date. And they've timed that flyby to occur at what they expect to be the maximum plume output from the South Pole. So the flux of stuff coming out of Enceladus should be very large, and hopefully they'll be able to get some compositional information about what's actually being ejected from this, this body. Very exciting. Very cool moon. Okay, so um, I'm going to talk now about some news from space, uh, specifically news uh, about things that humans are up to in space. So the first item I have uh, is about whiskey. So this is about um, a Scotch whiskey called Ardbeg and a bottle of Ardbeg, which has spent three years aging on the International Space Station. Uh, this is in conjunction with an aerospace company called NanoRacks. And what they were trying to find out, essentially, is how the aging process differs in zero gravity to that um, here on Earth. So what they did was they sent up this bottle of Ardbeg whiskey, um, it's a single malt, in case anyone is interested, 
um, and they sent it up with some shavings of oak, um, the sort of which might be in the barrels that it would be aged in down here on Earth. Um, so they introduced the oak shavings into the whiskey up on the space station and let it sit there for three years and then brought it back down and compared it to a bottle that had been aged here in the Earth. And when they compared the two, um, when they tasted the two, they found that the tastes were notably different. So while the Earth sample was reminiscent of an aged Ardbeg style with hints of cedar, sweet smoke and balsamic vinegar, as well as a bunch of other pretentious whiskey-y things, um, <laughs> <laughs> gentle smoke and tar and creamy fudge and stuff. Um, <laughs> no one actually says that, I'm serious. <laughs> um, the, the space station sample um, was quite different. So it had flavours um, which testers described as intense and rounded with notes of antiseptic smoke, rubber, smoked fish and a curious perfumed note like cassis or violet. It also had woody tones leading to a taste of antiseptic lozenges. Now, I'm not making this up. This is actually what it says. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I don't know if that's really going to take off as a thing down here on Earth. I mean, I'm intrigued by the antiseptic smoke. I'm just like, what is antiseptic smoke, you know? (laughs) Apparently, it's something that whiskey drinkers smell on a regular basis or something. Just well, I mean, I'm, a, I'm a whiskey drinker. I've never, I've never yeah, inhaled whiskey. I, I like and thought, well, well, you obviously smoke. don't drink yeah. enough whiskey if you don't know what the smell of antiseptic I smoke mean, is. I've heard of a whiskey being described as smoky. Yeah. But, but um, what even does antiseptic mean in that context? <laughs> like very clean smoke? I don't, I don't it's odd. Did they accidentally take a bottle of TCP up? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I would really be interested, though, to taste the space whiskey. If if um, if Nano Racks wants to send any my way, uh, I I would be definitely interested in being part of a focus group. I think a complimentary Jodcast sample should be dispatched. I absolutely agree. So, so just to be clear, was the bottle sealed the entire time that was on the International Space Station? Or? Okay, no, because they opened it to introduce the oak shavings, because they didn't want the oak shavings to have any influence on the flavour under gravitational conditions. They wanted it to be entirely zero gravity ageing, so it was opened up there. Opened is probably the wrong phrase to use, because obviously if you open a bottle of whiskey in zero gravity, it'll all empty out. Um, into the space around you but um, the the shavings it was unsealed to introduce the shavings um, and then resealed so so it is quite possible that some of these antiseptic smoke and uh, lozenge flavors could have been introduced when it was briefly opened possibly now I don't know the details of the experiment so maybe they had some clever kind of airlock system for introducing the shavings I don't know In other news from space, uh, I've been following uh, NASA's Year in Space project, which, uh, if you haven't heard of it, is really interesting. They've sent a man called Scott Kelly up into space uh, for a year, for an entire year. Um, And in conjunction with this, uh, they've kept his twin brother. They've kept his twin brother down here on Earth. Um, So they're already kind of a unique case, these two, because they're the only siblings who have both been into space. Um, on you know previous occasions because they're both astronauts. So Scott Kelly is up in the International Space Station for the year and his brother is down here on Earth and they're going to do tests on both of them when Scott arrives back here to see how spending a year in space uh, changes you, essentially. Uh, so they've recently um, given us an update on how Scott is doing and they've specifically been talking about how spending a year in space affects your body because obviously uh, it's very different conditions to what we're used to. Um, so up in space, um, Mr. Kelly will experience 
nearly 11,000 sunrises and sunsets um, over the course of the year compared to the 684 that we experience down here on Earth. Um, he has to exercise for more than 700 hours during his year-long mission to keep his bones and his muscles and his heart all working correctly to prevent the zero-gravity conditions from deteriorating them. Specifically, he'll run about 648 miles um, on a very special treadmill. Um, now, George tells us that's really not that impressive. I personally feel like it's quite impressive. Well done, Scott. <laughs> um, I like to run, but I could never run that far in a year. Um, so, so I think that's pretty cool. I do love long distance running. Running, running is fun. Running is great. And as we were saying, uh, before the show started, um, running is something that humans are kind of put together quite well to do. I mean, we've evolved from, uh, you know, beings that had to chase down their prey. Um, so that's why we've got such long legs. We're actually. Actually, I thought that we were evolved from, uh, people who just sort of walked across the Serengeti as scavengers when no, none of the other animals were around because, the wildebeest had their own migration schedules, and this is becoming like a really long. Odd and end, it is. <laughs> I like. I'd, I, if I was a listener, I'd like these tangents. Yeah. Th- this is such an extra tangential type thing, though. <laughs> anyway, um, about three hundred and eighty-three experiments will be conducted on Scott Kelly while he's up in space. Um, which is really rather a lot. That's more than one a day, really. God. Um, and he will be exposed to as much radiation as you would be if you flew from Los Angeles to New York 5,250 times. Hmm. Huh. I don't think that's healthy, really, do you? God, it's a good, it thing, he's, it's a good it. thing he's doing all that running. So maybe it'll counteract it. <laughs> to shake it all out, Dr. Anyway, and finally, um, Scott Kelly will drink about 730 litres of recycled bodily fluids while he's up there, and he'll produce about 180 pounds of feces that will be shot out into space and re-enter our atmosphere as a shooting star. Hmm. So the next time you're out looking at shooting stars... Think long and hard about yeah, that. Yeah, be aware. Be aware <laughs> uh, what the nature of some of them may be. <laughs> so the odd and end I brought this week is a press release from uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory talking about a new class of rovers. And uh, these rovers specifically designed to work on the surfaces of asteroids and comets. So if you think of a classical rover like one of the Mars rovers, such as uh, Curiosity, these are things that sort of look like uh, little robotic carts with like some sort of camera sticking up on a pole and uh half a dozen wheels or so and those would just sort of like tromble across the surface and someplace with a reasonable amount of gravity like Mars where it's not actually going to fly away if it hits a small bump. Whereas if you're on a comet, as we learned with the Philae lander, for example, uh even a slight bump and you go flying unless you're well secured to the surface. So JPL, uh, working with the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Stanford University, has designed a couple of prototypes for a new type of rover, which they're describing as hedgehogs. So instead of having wheels, what these things look like are boxes, with a series of spikes at the corners. 
and the idea is that the boxes uh, have internal flywheels that cause the little boxes to spin, and so they actually uh, move about by sort of spinning around on the surface, and they stay stuck to the surface using the spikes on their outer body. The additional advantage to this, which, again, people should think about the Philae Lander when uh, thinking about this, is that you can put, for example, solar panels on all sides of this cube. So the solar panels on the cube can always be exposed to the sun, at least on one side, whereas Philae, whereas Philae when it landed sideways, had the solar panel in such a position where it wasn't exposed to the sun as easily. Uh, there's even a video online where you can see uh, people testing this in one of NASA's C-9 aircraft that they use to simulate weightlessness. And in the video, you can see a bunch of people just sort of flying around the cabin and having fun in zero gravity, but you can also see a couple of people very seriously working with uh, prototype robots in a little clear plastic box and watching the robots go through various maneuvers. So, uh, for example, there's sort of like a slight shuffle step that they can do, for example, or they can actually do like a really fun spinning leap type thing uh, if they want to travel large distances. I like that. I like the thought of these little hedgehogs just kind of jumping around on the surface of comets. It's uh, it's lovely, and it's 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 especially lovely because of how useful and practical they are. I really like the bit about how they're covered in solar panels. So um, they're kind of cool. It sounds like a lot of thought has been put into this. They're kind of cubic hedgehogs, but they are hedgehogs. Yeah, hedgehogs nonetheless. <laughs> We're um, equal opportunities to hedgehogs of all shapes and sizes at the Jodcast. It's. Actually, in all seriousness, they could probably uh, try different shapes as well as yeah, uh, the cube. that would be interesting. Uh, because it isn't like uh, the cube is the only polyhedral surface that we know about, so you could have a dodecagon. Yeah, because I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, thinking it through in my head, my picture of a cube sort of rolling around the surface. I was thinking, would that not be a bit awkward? Would it be better if it was some kind of like almost like a barrel shape, but with flat sides, so maybe with six or eight, or eight sides, mm. and then it could more efficiently no, I, sort of roll. Or am I? do I have the wrong picture in my head? I I think making it sort of uh, symmetric is uh, a good idea. Just of so course. It, so it can't go... actually get stuck on one preferential side. Exactly. So uh, that's why I said some other polyhedral-type yeah, surface, yeah, like, like a dodecagon, uh, for example, which is uh, a 12-sided solid, so it's uh, that's a bit more spherical. Roll about the place here. Cool. And now, rolling along, Joe answers your questions in Ask an Astronomer. Our first question this week is from Philip Larish, and he asks, When normal matter falls into a black hole, a proportion of its mass is converted into energy, which is radiated in the electromagnetic spectrum. However, this would not be possible for a particle of dark matter as it can neither absorb nor radiate electromagnetic energy. So how would the energy escape? The background to this question is that black holes, although they're black, the area around them isn't. So the area around black holes is a very active area because things are falling into the black hole. When it does that, it forms what's called an accretion disk. So that's a whole area where matter is swirling and, and, and going round and round the black hole in very, very high speeds and eventually decays falling into the black hole. The objects that fall into a black hole, so a thing that starts at infinity, so a very long way from the black hole and gradually falls in via the accretion disk, typically radiate very large amounts of energy on the way in, up to 10% of their mass converted into energy by equals mc squared. So that's a very, very huge amount of energy. And in fact, black holes are one of the most efficient ways we know of converting mass into energy or, or generating 
an emitting energy. But there's no rule that that needs to be true. There's no rule that anything falling into a black hole has to emit some energy. In fact, it varies how much they emit. And in the case of a dark matter particle, it wouldn't, as you say, be able to emit any energy because it can't emit electromagnetic radiation. So it wouldn't be able to emit any energy. So it would just have to fall in. But there's more to it than that. For this very reason, because it can't emit radiation, dark matter finds it very hard to fall into a black hole. So one of the most important effects that we see in space is angular momentum. If you've seen the movie Gravity, you'll know that angular momentum, that's the rotational momentum that things have, is a really powerful effect in space physics. Ordinary matter, when it wants to either clump together to form bound structures like galaxies and stars, or to collide and to fall into black holes, or to fall into black holes, for that to happen, it needs to lose angular momentum, because typically otherwise things just don't come close enough to each other to really interact and hit each other. The only way that ordinary matter can fall into a black hole, and rather than just whiz past the black hole, is by losing angular momentum. So we don't expect dark matter to really fall into black holes in any serious amount, in any serious quantity, because only by losing some angular momentum can any kind of material fall into a black hole, and dark matter can't really lose angular momentum efficiently. Our second question is from Ike, and Ike says, I was taught that photons do not interact with one another, which is why you can cross laser beams. Now I learned that gamma rays interact with background photons to produce an electron-positron pair. What are the rules for interacting photons? Ike is absolutely right that in the classical laws of electromagnetism, light is what we call linear. So the, the laws of electromagnetism are linear. So that means that if you have one solution to those laws, if you if you find a an object that can exist or a phenomenon in electromagnetic systems like light, and you find another solution, if you find two different phenomena that can happen electromagnetically, then if you add them both together, they can both exist in the same place as well. So what that means in practice is that typically rays of light can just pass through each other without interacting, and it means that light can go on without decaying, light doesn't decay as it travels. So that's what linear means in this context. This is only true in a classical sense. This question cuts to the heart of one of the differences between classical and quantum physics. It's only in the classical laws that EM, electromagnetism, which describes light, is completely linear. In fact, in lots of other places, not just quantum mechanics, that linearity does break down. So one is if light is going through a medium. So if light is going through air or through uh, any kind of dispersional medium, then it loses linearity quantity and light, different light rays can interact with each other. But it also loses that phenomenon in quantum mechanics. So when we're down to the level where we're dealing with individual photons, that's when photons can start to interact with each other. This linearity that we see in classical physics, in quantum mechanics, that uh, manifests itself as the rule that photons can't interact with each other directly. So one photon cannot hit another photon and just bounce off directly because neither of them carries any charge, so they can't interact electromagnetically, and they don't, nor do they carry any of the other charges of any other kind, so the weak or the strong or the colour charge that we get. So that means photons can't interact directly. But what photons can do is fluctuate. A photon can temporarily fluctuate into a pair of new particles. So a photon can pop into existence a fermion and an antifermion. Those two particles, either of those, can then go on to interact with another photon. So the idea is that two photons coming towards each other, if one of them temporarily, via the strange behaviour of quantum mechanics, fluctuate into two new particles, one of those particles can interact with the other photon. So photons don't interact directly, they have to go via the medium of two temporary particles. Now you asked about the rules of these things. The the same rules that we have for classical physics typically apply here as well. So that's the overall, the energy, charge and momentum of the particles has to be conserved. So even though temporarily and you know in a quantum fluctuation we can have energy appearing or disappearing temporarily, in the end and overall that energy has to be conserved. And the same is true with charge and momentum. 
If you're interested in these phenomena in general, the very beautiful visual language for describing interactions like this is called Feynman diagrams, F-E-Y-N-M-A-N, after the, the great physicist. If you have a look at some of those on the internet, they're very, very beautiful, and they describe these kind of interactions that photons and other particles can take part in. Thanks. That was a great foray into particle physics there. So our final question comes from Robert Rose, and he asks, is the sun's mass increased by the thermal motion of its atoms following the mass-energy equivalence of special relativity? If so, how much? The background to this question is, as Robert correctly says, that in relativity, the thing we would normally call mass, so that is the inertia of a particle, does change with its energy, does change with its velocity. So although particles have what we call a rest mass, that what we might call their real mass, their mass at zero speed, their inertia, their resistance to, to additional motion does change with as their speed get, approaches the speed of light. So I'll treat this problem as a Fermi problem. Enrico Fermi, pioneering physicist of the 20th century, was famous for being able to estimate quantities in any kind of situation. If you asked, give him any kind of problem, he could get it to within an order of magnitude. So we'll, we'll try and treat this by using just a, a few large numbers rather than trying to get the perfect result. So what we'd like to do is compare the typical thermal energy of particles in the sun, turn that and compare that to a mass energy that they have. We have the thermal energy, which is that these particles are all moving around, and we'd like to compare that to their mass energy to see which of those is bigger and what the difference between them is, or the ratio between them is. Because they do have some thermal motion, we do expect there to be some effect on their mass. So Robert is entirely correct that there will be some change to the mass of the sun from the motion of the particles inside it. So the rule for a particle, a given a single particle, is that its energy associated with its thermal properties is that for each degree of freedom a particle has, that's normally three, it has what we call a half kT of energy. So T is the temperature and K is Boltzmann's constant. So that's telling us that the energy of a particle is proportional to its temperature, or the typical energy of a particle is proportional to its temperature. And the, the value of Boltzmann's constant is about 10 to the minus 23 joules per Kelvin. So an individual particle has very little energy, as you would expect. Now, the sun's temperature is 10 to the 6 or 10 to the 7 Kelvin. That's for the, the inner part of the sun where most of the particles are contained. So I'll take that as a kind of average typical temperature of the sun, 10 to the 6 or 10 to the 7 Kelvin. So if we multiply those things together, we get kT, so the typical energy of a particle. And I'm, I'm dropping some factors of 3 over 2 and that kind of thing here, just for convenience. We get that they have about 10 to the minus 17 or 10 to the minus 16 joules for a single particle at the kinds of temperatures we have in the sun. So let's compare that to the mass energy of these things. The mass of a proton, which is what most of the particles in the sun are, um, is about 10 to the minus 27 kilograms. And we need to multiply that by c squared to use equals mc squared to get the energy. So c is 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second. So what we end up with after all turning the handle and, and doing all these numbers is that the mass energy of a particle in the sun is about 10 to the minus 10 joules. So we have the thermal energy being 10 to the minus 17 or 10 to the minus 16 joules, and the mass energy being 10 to the minus 10 joules. So approximately only about one part in a million or one part in a 10 million is the thermal energy compared to the mass energy. So that means we expect the mass of the sun to increase by only about one part in a million or one part in 10 million for the thermal energy. And that was surprisingly small. I thought that would be a larger number, but it's only one part in a million or so, the answer to your question. Whilst that's a relatively small number, that's still a very big number. Absolutely. There are a lot of particles in the sun. <laughs> there are about 10 to the 57 particles in the sun. So we, that means we would expect that increase is, is pretty enormous in absolute terms. That's true. Well, that's great. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks. Thanks for that, Monique and Joe. And now on to your feedback. We've had no posts and email, but quite a few messages on Facebook. Andrew Horner has been in touch to say, I was dismayed on hearing George say on the September edition, this is the last visit to the Jodcast by Ian Morrison. Fortunately, I rewound and realised that I had misheard. Uh, he said it isn't the last visit to the Jodcast by Ian Morrison. Phew, what a relief. Thanks for that, Andrew. Um, I still think Ian's going anywhere just yet. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, really better not. Anyway. <laughs> That's another <laughs> one of those <laughs> convoluted links that we use, and uh, apparently it wasn't quite clear enough. <laughs> At least <laughs> yeah, upon we need to first be more listening. careful with those. <laughs> Our Andrew's volume was too low. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Francis Cairns has been in touch to say, "Good to see you back. Loved the show and hope the skies are clear on the twenty eighth. Love the new lady from the Carter Observatory too. Thanks for that, Francis." Of course, the 28th is the date of the lunar eclipse. Of course. This month. So um, we're going to hopefully try and arrange a way for you to send in your pictures to us. So if you can find a way to do that, then please do. Um, and we'll try and include a link on the website of an email address or so, some way of sending us your pictures. And we may include them on a little website as well and yeah. uh, mention them in a future show. And we'd love to see those. I'll be watching carefully on the 28th too. Excellent. Um, so Christy Risner has been in touch. She said, I'm new to your podcast and astronomy as well. My daughter is five months and I have started the process of trying to learn astronomy for her. I want to share my love of the stars with her. Though some of your topics are way over my head, I still learn so much and appreciate the challenge of learning something new. Thank you for all your hard work. I'm definitely a fan. Um, thanks for that, Christy. Oh, that's lovely. That's, that's lovely, lovely, Christy. Um, and, and, you know, it was um, my father who first got me into astronomy. I remember as a very young child, he took me upstairs late at night, um, much past my bedtime. I wouldn't ordinarily have been allowed up to show me the moon through a telescope that his friend had lent him. Um, and I remember just being completely fascinated and thinking, I have to know more about this. And uh, here I am now. So who knows what seeds you could be planting, Christy. Indeed. Um, and Christy, feel free to send us any of your questions as well and feel free to use and abuse the Ask an Astronomer facility. And finally, Dave Lehman, Jodcast, my favourite human exploration of the universe podcast. Many thanks. Um, thanks for that, Dave. It's our favourite too. And thanks for all the likes, shares and retweets. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post the addresses on the website. Thanks to Hannah Stacy and Dr. Reiner Beck for the interviews. The editors were Charlie Walker, Ian Harrison, Monique Henson, and Benjamin Shaw. The producer was Benjamin Shaw. Until next time, jod on. Jod on.